Hello and welcome along to the latest episode of the Manchester Red, Red Podcast from the Manchester Evening News. I'm today's host, George Smith, and I'm delighted to say I'm joined by our Chief United writer, Samuel Woodkirst, and fellow United writer, Stephen Railston. How are we this Monday afternoon, chaps? Not bad, thank you, George. Not bad at all. Good stuff? Uh, yes, brilliant myself, George. Thanks for asking. How are you? Yeah, well, not too bad. Not too bad, thank you, Stephen. Of course, there is only one place we can start, isn't there, on this uh, Monday afternoon. That's the relatively breaking news that Manchester United are going to be facing Barcelona in the Europa League playoff round to try and reach the last 16 proper. The draw was made just over an hour or so ago in Switzerland. Me United now know what they've got to do to get into the, the next phase of the competition. Start with that, Samuel. Although Barcelona are probably not the side they used to be a few years ago, United really couldn't have asked for a tougher test out of the eight teams they could have got, could they? No, but it's it's a it's a great tie. It's it's the tie as as journalists that that we would want. Speaking to some of the supporters at Bilbao Airport on Friday, some couldn't really be bothered with Barcelona because they've been to the Camp Nou a few times. And the if if you've ever been there or you've ever been the away end there, you are you're in touching distance with the gods. Really, it's it is that high up. Uh, it, it feels like you're you're in heaven. So that that was one of the incentives for them not to. Uh, go to Barcelona, but speaking to other fans there, they they wanted Barcelona. I think one lad said that he he wants to see United batter Barcelona. Uh, I'm not too sure if that's, that's solely down to the the summer of, of Frankie de Jong, but the, the history between the two clubs is is immense, uh, going back to the the Cup Winners' Cup games in in '84, and you had the Rotterdam final, uh, which was a pretty I mean it was a you know, significant significant moment in British football. It was the first time. The British club had triumphed in Europe after the Heisel disaster in 1985. The 1994 games, those, I mean, the 4-0 drubbing United received in the return leg uh, or, or the return game was an extremely harsh lesson, but uh, it, it was probably a significant moment in their their quest to become European champions. And then four years later, you had those pulsating 3-3 games, the Colin York 1-2, uh, sensational Skulls is sliced winner in 2008. And then, uh, somewhat ironically, I guess, the, the two finals between the teams that were anticlimactic because United were, were thoroughly outclassed in both of them, more so in, in the second one, which which you know, just told its own story about how the, the squad had, had not developed enough. And and most recently, it was, a, it was I suppose it was a bit of a non-event three years ago, a 4-0 aggregate defeat, uh, not a good time for United at, at that point as well. That was that was the week that ended with a 4-0 a thumping at Everton. But just, just going back to the Barcelona United history, it's it's great. You can't really ask enough from it. Uh, Chab, Chabby's going to be the Barcelona coach, you would imagine, unless something goes drastically wrong for them between now and... In February, and one of his first ever games for them was was at Old Trafford under Louis Van Gaal, in that first three three in I think it was September ninety eight. So uh, it doesn't seem that long ago still to me. It, it would do to to you two, I'm sure. I'm not too sure if either of you were even born at the time, but those those games were were extraordinary. Really, if if the full ninety minutes are on YouTube, then both are well worth watching. Just some absolutely scintillates in football, Figo and his pomp, Rivaldo and his pomp, Cole and York at at their very apex, uh, Beckham in his pomp as well. That was that was his greatest season for United, 98-99. So you can't help but get romantic about United and Barcelona, uh, just just mainly with with those two games. And those two games were only in the group stage. So 
first time they're ever going to meet in the Europa League or the UEFA Cup, as it used to be known. But hopefully it's it's a tie that lives up to its billing because I'm sure the people at UEFA are absolutely thrilled uh, looking at the other Europa League draws, which were by and large extremely underwhelming. The way York and yeah. Paul Samuel, I've never heard of those players before. Yes, yes. Well, they. Um, <laughs> I, I, I can imagine, you know, and Andy Cole, you, 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 your dad's still smarting from him bearing uh, off in in '95. But but Keith Gillespie, that that wasn't a bad part exchange. Without Keith Gillespie, Fasino Espirito would not have had his hat trick against Barcelona. So we, there's another Barcelona connection, even with a, a Newcastle angle. Yeah, it's no coincidence. My brother's called Andrew. I don't think. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, as Samuel said there, Stephen, it's going to be the glamour tie of the round. It is, you know, the the, the pinnacle of the this stage of the competition. But while many United fans might be thinking, "Oh gosh, this is the the game we want me to avoid," at the same time, it could be used as an opportunity. You know, three months down the line, it could be an opportunity to see just how far United have come under Eric Ten Hag so far. Of course, and you've got to beat these sides to make it to the final of the competition. You've got to play them at some point. Yeah. Um, and it's really something to look forward to, isn't it, across across the winter months? We've got the dark nights. It's coming dark at 5pm now, but if United fans look forward, you've got the World Cup, and then when you come out of that in February, you've got that tie at the new Camp. So that should be brilliant, maybe a trip away for a few supporters, as Samuel's just said. And I look back at that team that um, last played at the new Camp in 2019. I remember watching that game, actually. Um, with a lager and being measurized by Messi, he was fantastic that night. But it was it was Jones and Smolin at centre back and Lindelof at right back. Lindelof right back, yeah. Yeah, Lindelof at right back. So you fancy United have you know they've been defensively pretty good this season. Obviously Varane, hopefully he'll be back in time. Well, he'll be back for the World Cup already, and hopefully he's fit for that game because he'll be huge uh, with Martinez. But they'll definitely have a better defence and better chances of winning that game, I'd say, than in 2019. But as we've just touched upon. Um, I think Barcelona are a little bit ahead of United in that kind of the progress or the, the rebuild of the club. Um, I have watched them a few times this season. They're on ITV4, three, I think it is on a Sunday night. So it's a rare treat if you can, if you do nothing on a Sunday night, you can pop that on and, and watch them play. So, yep, a very exciting tie to come along. I think Barcelona will be a slight favourite, but you'd have to be op- optimistic going in if you're a United fan because, you know, you fancy your chances, I'd say. Yeah, you have to be, don't you? And as Samuel said, it is, you know, the rights holders, for example, they'll be absolutely lapping this up. They'll not be able to wait for it. But moving on from that particular tie to come, which we can all look forward to, um, Stephen, you just touched on there that defensively United have been pretty good of late, apart from Sunday afternoon. Samuel United beaten 3-1 by Aston Villa. Their nine-game unbeaten run coming to an end. You were at Villa Park. It was um, a pretty disastrous afternoon with just 11 minutes on the clock, wasn't it? Well, at nil-nil... It seemed a minor point at the time, but then about five minutes later, it was major. But Emiliano Martinez had the ball in his penalty area and Van der Beek literally turned away almost as if it was time. It was late at night and you're swapping shifts with someone who's tired after a night shift and the other one coming in is tired uh, after getting up early and it's their turn. And I just thought, why aren't they pressing him? Like, fair enough. you okay? you don't want to leave a, a man spare. But that really set the tone. It was just so lethargic from United. Villa were always going to be energised because they're under a new manager and he's a very good new manager as well. He's He's got a ceiling, Unai Emery, but when he's working uh, you know, within that ceiling, he tends to do very well and that's why he might be very well suited to Villa. And United had a game on Thursday and there was only one change from that game. And really after quite a gruelling October, 
the lack of rotation between the Premier League games and the Europa League games is really starting to, well, as you saw yesterday, it's starting to have dire consequences. Um, a lot of players just look pretty lifeless, uh, not not fresh enough. They, they weren't on the front foot. They were impressive, United, for maybe 10, 15 minutes at the very maximum. And that was towards the end of the, of the first half when they did start to gain a bit of momentum and, you could feel it in the in, in the crowd as well after United scored. That Villa fans have seen that before so many times. I mean, as I said, I think before sorry since they'd last won against United at home in '99, they'd led them nine times in games only not to win. So United coming back to not not um, not lose at Villa is nothing new, but. So going into half time and come back out, you sense that this was eminently salvageable. But then, of course, within four minutes, Ramsey scores. And really, United didn't create anything after then. There was maybe one opportunity for Dallow when he, he literally passed it up by not passing it to anyone. He couldn't pass it to Ronaldo because he was offside, as as he was most of the time yesterday. And I'm sure we'll get on to him. But it was, it was, it was a bad week for Ten Hag in, in terms of his game management because... In, in San Sebastian, I didn't see the need for him to make those changes at the time that he did. But 58 minutes in, two players come off, two players go on, and it's a formation change. And it didn't help. Uh, it was more of a hindrance than help. Yesterday, that there aren't any changes, tactical or personnel, until the 65th minute. There had to be a change at half time. I mean, he he clearly because of the way United play in the last 10 or 15 minutes of the first half, Ten Hag felt, well, I, I can trust these players to still salvage this. But that was that was just very naive, I thought. You, you couldn't just write off the first 30 minutes of the game. And speaking of write-off, that is what they've got to do with Van der Beek because there was literally only one manager on the planet who would have started him in that game yesterday. And you can include managers from, I don't know, walking football, five-a-side football, school football, uh, Sunday league football, literally every gaffer in the world at any level in any country. And Ten Hag is the only manager who would pick Van der Beek. If he cannot, if he can't have the pace against a La Liga side in the Europa League, he is not going to be able to hack it in the Premier League, away from home, against a team under a new manager. And so it proved. And look, it's easy just to pick on Van der Beek too easy really because he's not good enough for United but there were so many issues yesterday Rashford on the right wing never worked never will work Ronaldo up top has not worked this season uh, keeping Lindelof was not a contentious call pre-match post-match it certainly was because I mean for the first goal it was like watching David Luiz with him just going walk about and then vacating this space that that Bailey ran into so uh, it was it was a bad day on just about every level, and yeah, you know, I suppose the only positive for United to extract from it is that these experiments that they tried yesterday and failed with, uh, they've you know they've made their mistakes quite early in the season. We're only a third of the way through the Premier League season, so going on from here, you you don't do. What, what Ten Hag did yesterday, you don't start Van der Beek as a number 10. You don't start him at all, frankly. And you don't start Rashford on the right wing either. Yeah, it certainly was a case of Van der Beek not taking his chance. And Stephen, I think, as Samuel said, we were all surprised to see him keep his place in the team, weren't we, on, on Sunday afternoon. And 
I actually did a piece yesterday evening after the game about how Van der Beek had failed to, you know, kind of deliver what Eric Ten Hag had said in the sense, Ten Hag in pre-season Australia, he said Van der Beek's best position was in the number 10, the attacking midfield role. I think he registered 18 touches of the ball in 65 minutes at Villa. That That's not good enough for a number 10 player, whatever club you're playing for, never mind Manchester United, is it? His best position's on the bench, or not in the squad at the moment, being completely brutal. Um, no, he's not been good enough for a long, long time. Uh, there was obviously a lot of calls from the play when he first signed for the club. Obviously, Ajax had that exciting run in the 2018-19 Champions League when they reached the semi-final, but those calls have grown quieter and quieter uh, as the more time has went on, because when you watch him, he's just not that player uh, that you saw in that season. It seemed like an exciting signing at the time. Um but he plays in that number 10 and he tries to drift between the lines, but he was just anonymous, wasn't he? He didn't really offer much at all. And that's the second game in a space of a week that's happened. As you've just said, it was bizarre that he started against Sociedad. Um, and it was even stranger that he started at the weekend. The sensible thing to do, play Christian Eriksen in the 10. Casemiro, perhaps obviously alongside Fred and McTominay. I personally would have went with Fred. Yeah. <laughs> if that doesn't happen against Fulham, you'd be scratching your head, wouldn't you? You really would. Um, that was he's, a disappointment. He's not, he's not played Ericsson as a 10 yet, has he? No, but that's no, the thing. He likes him in that super role, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah, he likes him to control in the, the game and that kind of Dijon role. And he called him a connector, didn't he, Samuel, in pre-season? The connector yeah. role, I think, was yeah. a direct quote. So that's interesting. Maybe he does see Ericsson as he's just solely in that position. Um, but it would definitely be with him. You know, he should have the benefit to play at number 10, 100% yesterday because... As we've just like Van der Beek just offers nothing. That's just uh, the truth about it. And on social media, fans are saying it, journalists are saying it. So surely Ten Hag's got to see it. And I think, as you wrote on your piece, George, that has to be the last chance, surely, doesn't it? Because if he comes back into the side, it'd be bizarre. It would be. And just quickly, I... uh, from from an, I suppose taking you away from the professional side, as a Newcastle fan, did you want him there in January? The Chronicle got in touch when United played Newcastle uh, two weeks ago, and I said that I said no. I don't think he'd get into Newcastle side now. I think oh, back no, then, yeah, you would have you would have wanted him. But when you watch him when he went to Everton, um, completely underwhelming, got injured, it was disappointing. And then no Newcastle fan. I think you read on social media, you see what they're saying. They would take him. Um, even in January, they would have passed up on the opportunity. I think. Um, so it was probably a, a bullet dodged in that sense. Do you know what I mean? When you watch him, when you see him go yeah. to Everton, and that that just shows how much he's, he's fallen from grace, Van der Beek. But, but that, that was that was my issue with him at the start of last season that you could always use in Solskjaer's defence when he wasn't playing him. At the end of that summer window, Van der Beek was trying to go to Everton on loan. If you're a year into your Man United career and you just want to get out and go to Everton of all places, like which was seen as, this, as at that time as this comfort zone, to, to me at that point I just thought he's he's not got the mentality for it. And you've got to you've got to wash your hands of it. And look, Sol's, it was it's on Solskjaer that the money was spent on him. But I suppose Solskjaer can always say, well, look, you know, my, my main target was Grealish. I couldn't get him. We had the option. We took it. But I knew he wasn't up to it. It'd be interesting if he ever does say that one day. I suspect he won't. But well, you can see why up. he was very reluctant to use him. I'm not sure if you two agree, but there's that Ajax side that reached the, the semi-finals. Do you not think it's weird how they're remem- remembered in such a light? I know they beat. Real Madrid and Juventus on that path. But when you look at the players that kind of came from that side, obviously De Jong is Quite undoubtedly, like. yeah, exactly. He's undoubtedly he's the best player. Hakim Ziyech is, it's not being yeah. cut, like fantastic, has he? So you look at that team and you think the players that have come from it, 
Um, it was just a few games, wasn't it? And you can't really judge it. I'm not too sure where he is now, but I think he was quite Benfica now. Yeah, Yeah. quite well, aren't they? Yeah, Yeah, Kasper Dolberg. I can't remember if he was a regular. It was probably Tadic who was playing through the middle, but Dolberg has obviously not not kind of reached the heights that maybe others thought he was was going to reach. I mean, you look at Villarreal who reached the semi-finals last season, and they're they're not going to be remembered in that light either. So strange in that sense. Yeah. You know, there's certainly, you know, there's not any player that set the world alight since that that Ajax run, it must be said. But yeah, going back to the point of Dion getting into that number 10 position ahead of Ericsson, and Samuel said, like, obviously, it's not the first time it's happened. You remember Fred played in the number 10 role against Sociedad in the, the original fixture at Old Trafford in September, and that didn't work that night. So I think it is fair to say now that Ericsson is going to be in that number eight position. But Samuel, do you think, I actually wrote a piece on it on Saturday ahead of the game, and I think you did one, maybe the beginning of last week, that Ericsson, you know, had got that chance to play in that number 10 role with Fernandes suspended, with Fred and Casemiro sitting a little bit deeper. Surely the next time, if an instance does occur when Fernandes isn't there, surely Ericsson has got to play in that number 10 role and show what he can do in that position. He can't play Van der Beek there. He just can't. There's... They've they've just got to concede that. Um, look, Ajax would take him back. I've I've no doubt about that. You you give Ajax the option for fifteen or twenty million pounds. I think that's a, a slam dunk, really. Uh, but I, that's why that's the way I looked upon it. With with Fernandez's suspension, you had to see it as a positive because his performance level this season has has not been particularly great. Uh, he had a good week the other week against Tottenham and Chelsea, uh, at least until he was uh, relocated to the wing by by Ten Hag in, in the second half of the Chelsea game. But he's he's still a player that you think you can get more out of, or he's he's too erratic. And with Ericsson, Fred and Casemiro, you've got a very compatible midfield three there. I know they're all... I mean, Fred's turning 30 next year and I think Casemiro and Ericsson are born only a few days apart and, and they're both 30 already. But you've got a six and eight and a ten there. Uh, I know Ten Hag is playing Ericsson as a, a as a number six or a number eight, uh, but he is he is a playmaker. I think if if you mention if you say Christian Ericsson's name to football aficionados and you ask them you know, play word association, what's his position? They'll say playmaker or number ten more often than not. And it does feel as though they're squandering an opportunity there because. He, he is such a creative player. I know there was a deflection on the cross yesterday, but he did you know, essentially provide the best opportunity for, for Ronaldo that Ronaldo didn't take in, in the first half at 2-0. At and there are other players that Ten Hag has got who very, very quickly, all of a sudden, he, he will play in a different position. It was a mistake to play Rashford on the right yesterday, but I, you know, I sympathise with Ten Hag in that somebody was going to have to play there. And it, all it takes is still, with this United attack, one injury to compromise it. It's still very lopsided. They've got enough right-footed left wingers to fill a lift and they've not got enough left-footed wingers. So obviously Anthony's injured. Someone who is not, not really compatible with that role has to go in there. So it feels like, strangely, that you're jamming a square peg into a round hole when... You know, if we're playing five aside and we're right footers playing on the right hand side or something like that, it's it's not going to feel particularly alien to us. But that's it just seems like that's the way it is at United. But I thought, given how promising Rashford's form has been in the Premier League, and he's the senior player, 
he's the one. It shouldn't be him who's who's moving out to that side. Garnacho is still learning his trade, and he's still young enough to chance his arm on the right, see how he is. He might be brilliant. There's there's barely any point in mentioning Facundo Palestri. If if Ten Hag fancied him, he'd have given him a go by now. It, it must have been what nine games in a row, ten games in a row, maybe that he's been on the bench and not come off, uh, come off it. And you wouldn't be surprised if he's unused against Villa in the League Cup on the th- on Thursday night either. So as a, as it was kind of the crux of the piece yesterday. As bad as the defending was, I think there's a recurring theme in these bad defeats from United that the attack is is the bigger problem. And the way it's set up at times, and there's there's still like if if you take I mean who who's missed for United at the weekend? It was Sancho, um, Anthony, and yeah, it was Sancho and Anthony. So say their equivalents at City, big money English signing Grealish. You take him out of the team. Um, I don't know Anthony's equivalent, someone like Riyad Mahrez. You take him out of the team, and. I suppose Marshall was on the bench. He's the number nine. Haaland is City's number nine, although it's not much of a fair comparison. You take him out of the team. You take those two players out of City's team, City are going to play the same way, exactly the same way without them. You take those three players out of the United team and look what happens. There's just no consistency with the playing style unless they've got the right players that Ten Hag wants available. And United, don't be surprised if this time next year, if they're still in that situation because there's going to be some luck involved, but the squad management has got to be perfect for them to get away with that or to get to that level. Yeah, definitely. And, and moving away from the, the wide areas and into the middle, Stephen, obviously United in the last three games in the past week, West Ham, Sociedad and Villa, two wins out of those three. So not all bad news, but only one goal scored in each of them. Cristiano Ronaldo not scored any of them, but started all three games. He is no longer that reliable source of goals that he once was. United, for me, they don't look as good when he's on the pitch. I think Gary Neville said it after the Chelsea game when he was absent, they looked a lot better. I think I think we're just going to have to accept now that possibly his time at United and what they want him to do is no longer happening. It's a fact, isn't it, George? Uh, yeah. It's not even an opinion, though. United look better without Ronaldo on the pitch. That's just, you can't argue with that. Um, on this season's evidence. I've got noted down the score, 18 goals in 13 Premier League games this season. And Leeds, West Ham, Fulham, Brentford, Tottenham, who are struggling in the country, don't look good going forward. They've all scored more than United in the in the Premier League. So it's been the area that they really need to improve. And obviously you look at it and you think Anthony on the right, Martial down the middle and Rashford on the left is the best attack. But Martial, God, he's always injured, isn't he? Um, Anthony, first season in the Premier League. Is he reliable for, for you know, a haul of goals? And Rashford, yes, he's back in form, but he's not going to get you 20 a season, I don't think. Um, but I agree with Samuel, what he's just said. I would have personally started Rashford in his best position yesterday. If he's your guarantee, if he's your leading goal scorer this season, play him on the left, stop him on the left, put Ganacho on the right. Um, but yeah, Ronaldo, very poor again. He scored three goals this season. I think his one against Everton was obviously outstanding. Um, 700 club career goal but the other two it was FC Sheriff both goals I think one was a penalty in Moldova and the other one was a rebound so he's not being very good in front of goal which is obviously very uncharacteristic of him he is the game's best goal scorer of all time and that's from a Lionel Messi fan saying that however his powers are diminishing and as I've just said he's looking like a 37 year old and there needs to be a solution because United can't afford to carry him anymore up front it's taken so much away from that team and it's blunting everything on the pitch and Ten Hag's always used the word dynamic when he looks at that front three. 
And when Ronaldo's not on the pitch, when Ronaldo's on the pitch, they're far from dynamic, unfortunately. Yeah, I would certainly agree with that. Personally, I think if he's got everybody available, Ten Hag, I think the best front three he could muster up is Anthony on the right, Martial through the middle and Rashford on the left. I think for yeah. the way he wants to play with pace and speed and energy, I think those are the perfect three. But obviously with Martial's injury record this season, it's just not been possible. Samuel, do you think, you know, if Martial does manage to rekindle his fitness and get his, you know, get himself going again, do you think that could become Ten Hag's preferred three moving forward? I, I imagine it is his preferred front three because, I mean, Sancho's, since the derby especially, yeah. he's, he, he's he's been dreadful. Uh, he's, he's barely figured of late as well. And it, it's a balanced front three uh, as well. Rashford's in his best position. Anthony's in his best position. Marshall very much sees himself as a number nine. But... A month ago, we'd have all said United have one reliable goal scorer in Ronaldo. The, Stephen laid it out there, and I, I wasn't aware of just how stark those stats were. But it's pretty, I mean, it's remarkable given the amount of money they spent the summer. They are a club, and given how the size of the club as well, they don't have a reliable goal scorer anymore. You cannot say any of those players are. The last time Marshall had a consistent run of games and was scoring consistently, it's got to be close to three years ago. Must be. Um, maybe you know, maybe just before uh, football shut down because of the pandemic or I suppose when, when it restarted, he was in a decent run of form, so two and a half years. But that, that was a purple patch as well and that was the only season where he did score um, more than 20 goals, I think. Rashford's done it a couple of times. But when you, I think sometimes when we talk about a 20 goal a season player, we're talking about league goals. We're not talking about Europa League group stage and League Cup. It's it's the bread and butter. It's the acid test of Premier League football. And I'd be amazed if any of those United players this season break the 20 goal barrier in, in the Premier League. We all know next year they're going to have to sign a goal scorer. And beyond that, there is probably going to be some more work to do in terms of just balancing out that attack in that they have got far too many left-sided uh, players. I think it's clear under Ten Hag that Marshall is seen as a central player. Fair enough. You keep him there. Rashford, you've just got to keep on the left. Uh, sometimes recently he's played through the middle out of necessity because of Marshall's uh, lack of fitness and, and Ronaldo's uh, discipline issues as well, but his his best position is is on the left. That's that's not been a debate for a number of years now. So you're looking at it and thinking, well, are they going to need another another forward there just to balance out that attack, or to look at someone from the academy that they can hot house? And they're, they're doing that brilliantly at the moment with Garnacho, but he is again another right footed left winger and he, he looks a gem and hopefully he has a tremendous career at United and the fact that United still have this amazing knack um, or ability to to produce exciting and dynamic wingers is is, is something to marvel at but that that's what must make it more gall, all the more galling for them at the moment that when you look at that Premier League table is, is their goal difference minus now? It must be after yesterday I think I think they might have been on one goal difference and yeah, minus one now yeah, so minus one goal difference into early November and Stephen listed the, the clubs who've scored more Premier League goals than them this season. And that was, I think we all said this as well in the summer, that despite the investment, 
there were issues with that attack. That attack did not look... Um, it, it wasn't proven enough. It didn't have the quality of depth it needed. And this was an attack that they just strengthened with an £85.5 million pound signing in, in, in Anthony, who's who's done done decently. But when you spend that amount of money, you've you've got to be have you've got to have a certain guarantee of goals coming in. And you, you couldn't say that about Anthony because he he'd been playing in, in Holland and he might become a, a brilliant player for United. But they do need instant impacts as well as uh, long-term projects who are going to stay at the club and make the club a successful side again. So it, it is a dilemma and whether they're inclined to do anything in January remains to be seen. But I think their preference would be to sit tight until the summer. Well, we've talked about the clubs that have scored more. Sorry, George. We've talked about the clubs that have scored more than United this season. I know Erlen Haaland is an absolute robot, but he scored more goals on his own than United yeah. this season. Which really, that is just laughable, isn't it? Really, you just you just taken the words right out of my mouth. I was literally just <laughs> going to come on to that point. <laughs> yeah, he, I think he's now got the exact same number of Premier League goals as United have as a team, which yeah, which so. tells you everything, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah it does. But you know, moving on to a you know a slightly more positive note. Obviously, we can talk about the lack of goals and things like that. But I think you know, Stephen, since that City drubbing at the start of October. United have only lost one in the last 10, that being at Villa on Sunday. So there has been signs of progression, even if things have been far from perfect. With two games to go until the World Cup, just one of those in the Premier League, do you think United are about where they should be for, for what they would have wanted at the start of this season? Obviously, a new regime, new manager, big crop of new players. You know, Fulham away is their last game before the pause. Game, you know, on paper, they really should be winning. Obviously, no guarantees of that. But if they win that, they could, depending on results elsewhere, be, you know, be level on points with fourth place. I feel I'm always on this podcast when they lose, actually. Uh, and I'm the guest I usually host, obviously. But I, I, when you look at it, I think I always try to stress that perspectives needed after last season. It was such a disaster. It was so bloody brutal week on week. Um, and if they go in with 26 points, I think it'll be after Fulham and they're in fifth. Then yeah, when you think about it, that's, that's not a bad start, is it? I think a lot of United fans would have took that at the start of the season with considering, you know, what has just gone on in, in the disaster and the Ranyuk and whatnot. Um, but then you have performances like yesterday that kind of just, they are setbacks and it's kind of unexpected. The manner of the performance for me was so disappointing. Um, to concede two early goals, I know we just mentioned it earlier, if you concede one, fair enough, you're back into it. To concede two, you're thinking, oh God, there's another shades of Brentford coming in here. Um, they get a goal just before half time, you expect them to come back out. And it's just a lapse of concentration again. I think Samuel's made the point multiple times on the podcast. This side does mentally struggle uh, in front of big, raucous crowds. Villa's crowd right behind them and they just kind of collapsed. So although there is positivity, George, and, and, and there should be because you've got to remember where they came from last season. There's performances like this that kind of take the stuffing out of you, I guess, a bit if you're a supporter. Um, and do disappoint you and make you question it. But if we are seeing a glass half full, you look at Arsenal, for example, this weekend, I've, I've dropped the, them as an example a few times on the podcast. It is going to take time. There is a process, um, but performances like yesterday don't help supporters' patience, I don't think. Um, but 26 points at the World Cup, I think I think fans would have took that. If they yeah, be full, obviously. Yeah. yeah, of course. And I have to agree with that. I think, you know, if they do manage that, it would be, it would be respectable. But obviously, people... You know, a club of the size of United, the fans are always going to demand more, which is which is fine. It's to be expected. But looking ahead, obviously, to the Fulham game, obviously, Aston Villa to come first in the cup. 
Uh, Samuel, United will be without Diogo Dallo for that one, which is going to mean Eric Ten Hag is going to have to make an enforced change at right-back for the first time since he got the job. Obviously, Aaron Wambasaka has been very much out of favour under him. Do you think we could see Tyrell Malassia possibly moving across to that position? I, I was worried you were going to say, do you think we could see Aaron Wambasaka start that game? And <laughs> if, if you could get a worse option to start a United Premier League game than, than Donny van der Beek, it is probably Aaron Wambasaka. Uh, so I... I'd be well in favour of, of giving Malassia a go there. Uh, I, I actually, when we spoke to him in Bangkok, I asked him because there was some chatter where we can play at right back. And I, I actually asked him, oh, can you play at right back as well? And he said, no, no, always the left. And it seems, I think Ten Hag has said in a couple of press conferences this season that, you know, Tyrone Malassia can play there as well. And really, if, if, if Ten Hag is mentioning Malassia as an option, that's, it's, it's probably additional evidence that he just doesn't fancy Wambasaka, and that has been known for, for quite some time. It was known before the end of last season that he was free to go, but there were no takers. Uh, speaking to a Palace fan the other week, he, he said, oh, you know, we, we'd take him back in a heartbeat, and I, I think he was speaking for a lot of Palace fans. So I think United's best route for selling players next year has just got to it's got to be to go back to the club that they they bought them from and, and try and flog them that way. So Malassia would be the the logical one. Dallo has been overplayed. Um, it's it's a credit to him that he's been injury free for for over two years now. When he's come through something like 24, 25 successive United starts, um, it's it's a pity for them that he's picked up that suspension. But that that's been another issue as well and, and Ten Hag touched upon that in, in Cyprus last month I think about United's disciplinary record I think they've had it, what three players have been suspended now this season did McTominay get five yellow cards at some point it feels like yeah. so uh, that's that's three players before um, you know before Christmas who, who, who are getting uh, one match suspensions or, or before the World Cup has, has started I suppose is, is a more uh, is, is a better thing to say and I suppose that tells its own story in a way, uh, the way they're playing. Um, it's it's not just a struggle to score goals, it's a struggle to win games for them. They've, they've won so many games by the odd goal this season. And I mean, the two Ammonia games, how they only winning 3-2 and 1-0 and the, the, the absolute hard work and the ordeals that those matches were when Ammonia were absolute fodder. Um, it just again highlights the the issues they've they've had in front of goal this season, and I think s certain fans, uh, usually the ones who don't go to games, they they conflate, you know, really us us being very uh, objective in our analysis with negativity. It's not if if United play badly and get beaten three one at Aston Villa for the first time, so in the league for the first time since John Major was PM. Guess what? There's going to be criticism, and especially if they get beat playing the way they did yesterday, it's just it's going to happen. Um, it's okay though. I mean, you know, certain fans there, if if it's only solace to them, they're as paranoid as, as some of the players are. But again, that's probably a problem at United that players take some of the players do take criticism to heart too much. But you know, they've. I, I think. If, if they do go into the World Cup in fifth, I think that's reasonable going. They've not been cut adrift from the top four whatsoever. Uh, nobody following United is expecting them has or, or, or sees this season as a title challenge whatsoever. It's the, the very suggestion is ludicrous. Nobody's mentioning that whatsoever. 
this season is all about getting back into the Champions League. And if they finish fourth, I think United will take that. So they're in a, a decent position for that. There are obviously things that they're going to have to handle going forward. I think January is going to be very important. I think it's advisable that they do something if it is at all possible, despite the, the record investment in the summer. There are clearly certain areas that they could do with reinforcing mid-season rather than waiting until the summer because those those additions could be the difference between qualifying for the Champions League and not look at what Spurs did when they backed Conte in January last year. I don't think without Kulusevski and Bentancur, they, they finished fourth, but they, they went out there, they got them and those those two players played a big role in, in Spurs getting back into the Champions League. Yeah, definitely. And Stephen, just to wrap this up, as Samuel said there, there might be the temptation to do something in January. Obviously, if United do do enough, whether they do something in January or not, and get into the Champions League for next season, I think realistically, you know, that is a big achievement for Eric Ten Hag in season one, considering that, you know, the, the little problems that we're seeing at the minute, despite all the progression that's been made. So if they get into that top four, considering obviously Chelsea are stuttering, Liverpool are stuttering, Tottenham still in there somehow at the minute, your beloved Newcastle flying as well. It would be a really big achievement if they if they managed to do that, wouldn't it? And the standard at Manchester United is always to win a trophy, isn't it? That's that's what success is considered as. But as you've just said, George, and as we've discussed, perspective is needed uh, considering last season. And getting into the Champions League would be a fantastic achievement considering what's been going on the last year and a half. However, I do fear that they need additions in January. I saw John Murtagh go on record a few times now, um, kind of warning that perhaps investments unlikely in January um, which is interesting he's already kind of put that feeler out there a few times obviously Samuel did the line on the, the January window last week um, Ronaldo we've talked about the attack um, I think in an ideal world he'd move on in January um, let's hope he has a fantastic tournament at the World Cup and, and someone comes in with an offer I think that would be within everyone's best interest get a goal scorer in I mean the problem is we've been talking about the fact that United need a goal scorer and you look at the market and it's, it's, it's a tricky one to manoeuvre. Um, there's not many goal scorers out there that are available at the moment. So I don't really envy them in that in that sense. I know you've got Steven, Sesco or something. Stephen, are you telling me you've never heard of John Stead? The January <laughs> legend that is and what he did for Blackburn? Well, I, I can't even comment on that because I'm so right. baffled by something else. I don't know. He <laughs> played um, as well. No, J John Stead was the classic case of sign a striker and he scores a few goals that do the business for the rest of the season and thereafter he was absolutely useless but he <laughs> well, kept United, in the Premier League he, he did yeah. the, the short term job that they needed United could do with someone like that though couldn't they they really could to get them into the end of the yeah. season I mean, not, not about... Odin Carlo <laughs> <laughs> definitely not oh yeah but we've talked about those teams I mean Newcastle will strengthen um, you've got to remember they don't have European football which is going to be a huge advantage when, when these teams are playing two games a week. Liverpool, um, if they want to get into the Champions League, you think they might strengthen in January. Chelsea, new owners, Potter's under pressure. You think they'd invest in his first window. So the pressure's going to be on. Everyone around United, I feel, is going to strengthen. Um, so for United not to strengthen in January, I think supporters would be very angry again. And I think there could be maybe some more protests coming against the Glazers because obviously supporters are still unhappy and, and rightly so. Yeah, it's certainly going to be an interesting time that January window by the looks of things, isn't it? We'll see what happens and obviously we'll uh, we'll bring you everything as we get it. So that's all we've got time for on today's episode of the Manchester Red podcast. Make sure to stay with us on the MEM website for all the very latest United news ahead of Thursday night's Carabao Cup clash with Aston Villa. 
Once again, thank you very much for listening and listening, and please make sure to leave a like and subscribe if you haven't already. Take care, and we'll catch you again very soon.